The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. I think we're, we're shifting from an era in which Asia-Pacific supply chains and electronics in particular, it was a, a source of disinflation globally for three decades. And I think that era is, is over and electronics is not going to be disinflationary, uh, unfortunately, for uh, some time to come because all, all of the new investments in new facilities is expensive. And whenever you hear any, anyone use the word resilience, uh, resilience means overcapacity and overcapacity is expensive. That was Chris Miller, Associate Professor of International History at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University and author of Chip War, The Fight for the World's Most Critical Technology. Welcome to The Exchange, a weekly conversation with people of interest to business and financial professionals around the world. I'm Robin Mack, Associate Editor at Reuters Breaking Views, the financial commentary arm of Reuters News based in Hong Kong. This week, I spoke with historian Chris Miller, whose latest book, Chip War, offers a timely and fascinating account of how semiconductors have emerged as a battleground in the competition between the United States and China. Shortly after his book was published in October of 2022, the U.S. government unveiled sweeping new export controls aimed at cutting China off from certain advanced chips, technology, and equipment. And more recently, Chinese regulators announced a cybersecurity review on U.S. memory chip maker Micron, sparking concerns that Beijing is starting to retaliate. Hi, Chris. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. So I think the last time we spoke, it was in last October uh, when I reviewed your book. And it was honestly, it must have been just days after when the U.S. government kind of came out with their new export controls against China. So I think the timing of your book just couldn't have been any better. Well, yeah, it was certainly uh, something that I was uh, not exactly expecting to happen three days after publication date. So it's been, what, maybe five or six months since these new U.S. trade restrictions. So let me just start off by asking, uh, what has been the impact so far? Who's winning this trade war at this point? Well, I think the the sort of unsatisfying answer is it, it's too soon to tell uh, to give a, a a complete accounting of of who's winning. I think a lot of the restrictions, in particular the U.S. controls on the transfer of GPU chips that are used to train AI systems, are intended to have an impact over uh, a number of years, not a number of months. And so uh, there hasn't been an impact of those controls yet, but there wasn't intended to have been. Uh, but when it comes to the the types of tools that are used to manufacture chips, which are largely produced by companies in the U.S., Japan, and the Netherlands, uh, those controls have had an impact, um, both on the companies that sell those tools, which have had uh, to stop sales to certain customers, and on the buyers of those tools in China, uh, which in some cases are unable to get the tools uh, that they need. And so this has been uh, fairly disruptive uh, to the companies involved um, because the the scale of, uh, of sales that we're talking about is measured in uh, the billions of dollars. And a lot of these tools are tools that right now you can't really buy from uh, other suppliers except for companies that are currently complying with U.S., Japanese, or Dutch controls. Okay. I've, I've, so I've actually heard two contrasting camps on sort of how effective these controls have been. So the first one is that, you know, one is that they are far too narrow, there's too many loopholes, um, you know, and we've sort of seen Chinese companies able to find, you know, workarounds, including renting access, um, using cloud providers, using offshore 
subsidiaries to, to gain access to the restricted technologies. And on the other hand, I've sort of seen a lot of people say that, you know, these rules are just, it's just too blunt of an instrument. It's too vague and too broad. And this is particularly true for a lot of the chip making equipment suppliers, because, you know, if you're targeting an entire generation of chips, it's very difficult to enforce what part goes into what machine that goes into, you know, that makes a certain type of chips and doesn't make a certain another type of chip. So how, I mean, have these rules been, you know, has, has the impact been sort of the intended impact that U.S. regulators design them around? You know, I, I think the impact has been more or less as intended. I, I think certainly the impact is is blunt. Um, they impact both civilian and military users of GPU chips in China. Um, in the past, the regulations were designed to only target military end users, but th these controls changed that and said any user in China is not allowed to access these ships. And so, uh, so certainly it's an expansion uh, in a pretty dramatic way of the way the controls work because they're not only about uh, who's going to be the end user, they're just about the transfer of chips into, uh, into China. And so they, they do have a major impact on data centers used for whatever purpose in China insofar as they're being effective. Um, but I, I think the, the reason for that bluntness um, is that the prior method of trying to stop the use of these ships for certain end uses uh, in in China didn't work. There were lots of well-documented instances of chips that had been brought into China for ostensibly civilian uses being uh, ended, ending up used uh, for military purposes. So the bluntness was sort of part of the design of these regulations because prior efforts to be less blunt were seen not to, to be effective. You know, in, in terms of the, the workarounds that uh, some companies have been reported to uh, have found, the, the controls were written to say chips that are controlled can't be transferred into China, they weren't written to say Chinese firms can't use the chips. Uh, and that was deliberate, I think. And the rationale, again, was about uh, control and surveillance that the US didn't have uh, much visibility into how chips were used when they were in China, but when they're outside of China, uh, mm. the US has a lot more visibility, um, both via legal means, and I think one could also presume via uh, in intelligence capabilities. And so I think that uh, seeing that as a, as a loophole might not be actually the right interpretation because that's uh, that's that's how the rules were written. So how have the um, you know Chinese chip makers how have they coped with this broadly? Because I think the majority of the companies in China they don't really manufacture high end chips. They don't actually use that many high end chips. Just you know maybe a handful of companies. I mean, is it for the rest of the the industry that are kind of more focused on you know the more mature and commoditized types of semiconductors and technologies? Is it just business as usual for them? You know, I, th I think to a large extent, the answer is yes. I, I think the controls added um, another layer of risk that every company in the industry, customer, supplier, whoever has to deal with. And, and there's concerns across the industry that there might be more regulations coming. And so that I think probably does shape behavior to some extent. But the way the controls were written, the way they've been enforced is that if you're producing low-end chips or tools that are used for low-end chips, you're unimpacted. And so you're, you're right to suggest that for most Chinese ship makers, this shouldn't have a major impact. And I don't think it has had a major impact. If you look at the more leading edge producers like SMIC, when it comes to logic chips or YMTC, when it comes to memory chips, you know, there, I think the impact is, is larger. I think we're still going to have to wait and see some number of uh, months or a year or two as to how straightforward or not it is for these companies to adjust. 
um, to not having access both to new tools, but also in a lot of cases to getting uh, their tools serviced or spare parts um, when things break down. Um, there's differing views in the industry as to how problematic that will be. But I, I think if you look at the leading edge firms in China, uh, you're going to find more disruption than at the lagging edge where there shouldn't be much at all. Do you think the, the one of the outcomes of, of these chip restrictions on the Chinese chip sector is that you know, there will be a big push for these Chinese companies to even dominate that lower end of the segment and become even more embedded into global supply chains and even more vital to a lot of global technology firms that actually really need these low end chips? You know, I think it depends who you're looking at in in China. Uh, I think for for companies um, in the chip industry, there's a lot more reason to focus on low and mid end chips whose uh, whose tools that you need to produce them are not controlled because business is much easier enough to deal with these types of regulations. So there's probably a pretty strong rationale for a lot of companies to do that. But I think if you're the government, um, it's not obvious that that's what the Chinese government is, is prioritizing. And um, you know, I think we're, we're still learning about what the government's response is going to be in aggregate. Yeah. I think the government is still devising what its response uh, is, but um, it, it, it does seem like it would be a major shift in policy if the government were to say we're no longer interested in leading edge and i think that's pretty unlikely and so long as the government is putting a lot of money into leading edge then there's also a place for companies that are going to prioritize that because uh, they sense that there's government support uh, financially for uh, both making leading edge ships and also making the tools that make uh, leading edge ships i mean what can beijing do to to respond i mean i think when the restrictions first came out last year there was a lot of concern and talk about potential ways that Beijing can retaliate. Um, and I think there was a lot of talk about maybe using rare earths, for example. But that doesn't, that hasn't really happened. And it looks like for now, uh, the Chinese government is just focusing on diverting a lot of resources and subsidies and funding um, to develop their own chip makers. But how do you sort of see them pushing back and, and, and responding in, in the future? Yeah, I, th I think certainly ongoing government financial support will um, will be one prong of the strategy. That's n nothing new that's been in place for the last uh, decade or so since around 2014. The government's been putting a lot of money behind the chip industry. And it's it's probably the case on net that that's helpful for the chip industry, though I think there are some concerns about the ways that distorts incentives for for the industry in China itself. But that's that's the first prong of the strategy. I think I think more interesting are are two other potential prongs. Um, one is for the Chinese companies that make the machines that make chips, the chip making equipment. Uh, they now have an easier sales pitch within China because they can say, uh, "We're not going to cut you off uh, in case of restrictions, but your foreign suppliers might." Now, and I think the government is going to try to help these companies win more market share in China. I think it's interesting that after the Huawei restrictions, for example, um, these firms made a bit more, uh, had a bit more success in winning market share, but actually Chinese chip makers still bought a lot of tools from abroad. Uh, so maybe we're gonna see a big inflection point there where there's more domestic purchases of tools. I, I'm not sure, but I think it'll be interesting to see over the next 12 months as to uh, to what extent that shift does actually happening. And, and to the extent that it does happen, that'll be an interesting data point as to the relative quality of the Chinese made tools versus imported um, tools. So that's that's the second potential prong is putting money into the, the, the tool makers in China. I think a third really interesting thing to watch that's important, not only for chip makers, but also for the entire electronics industry is, do you get more pressure to buy domestically made chips? 
because um, in, in the past, the electronics industry has been relatively insulated from that type of industrial policy in contrast to many other sectors of, of Chinese industry. And that could change. Uh, and if that did change, it would provide a major market for Chinese shipmakers. Right now, they have to compete uh, even domestically with the best shipmakers in the world. Um, but if there's more formal or informal barriers to imported ships thrown up, that could provide a big market for uh, Chinese shipmakers. And so I think that's another place to watch very closely. Right now, we haven't seen any steps from the Chinese government to move in that direction, but it's in some ways a natural next step for the Chinese government to take. And so that's certainly a sphere I'm going to be watching uh, for potential uh, responses as well. Yeah, that's really interesting, especially if, you know, that's not only applied to domestic electronic manufacturers, but even foreign ones like Apple, for example. Well, that, that's right. And, and right before the restrictions last October, there was a debate about Apple's purchases of chips from YMTC, one of the leading Chinese memory chip makers. And Apple responded to critiques in the United States uh, by saying, well, actually, we're only going to buy YMTC chips for phones sold in China, and we're going to buy other chips for phones sold outside of China. Uh, I don't know to what extent that's true, or that was just Apple scrambling to uh, deal with um, uh, a bit of a PR crisis. But if it was true, it's interesting, because that does suggest a bit of bifurcation in, in supply chains that the industry has obviously long been um, hesitant to embrace because it's it's inefficient. I, I do wonder if companies like Oppo will be face, facing pressure to um, buy domestically made ships for, for their smartphones in, in two or four years time. You mentioned bifurcation of supply chains. I mean, do you think that's ultimately the goal of what you know, the U.S. government wants. I mean, if you sort of look at the chip restrictions coupled with the CHIPS Act, where chip makers get subsidies to, to build factories in the U.S., as well as the Inflation Reduction Act, I mean, is the whole point of this to, I guess, decouple or bifurcate supply chains uh, to reshore or friendshore high-tech manufacturing back to the U.S. and U.S. allies? So I think it's 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 tricky. I, I think certainly there's a desire in the U.S. to to well, it's not even I don't even think it's right to say that the U.S. wants to bifurcate leading edge chip making. The, the U.S. doesn't want to bifurcate; it wants to keep China completely dependent, mm. um, which is not not bifurcation. It's um, it, it's something different. I, I think when you look at more lagging edge chip making, you've seen an active decision not to have forcible bifurcation. The U.S. could have done that by imposing really strict controls on tools, and it decided not to do that. Uh, so I think the U.S. is still hoping, actually, that uh, when it comes to semiconductors, you don't get a lot of bifurcation. Instead, China remains pretty dependent uh, on uh, U.S.-designed Taiwanese-manufactured chips, in many cases, for many leading-edge uses. Now, the question is whether China will accept that outcome. Uh, it has for a long time. That's been the status quo. Um, but it's becoming less appealing for China as the U.S. decides to selectively get brand access to certain types of chips and not others. I think further down in the supply chain, in electronics assembly, for example, you're seeing a lot of uh, investments made today that are going to push forward bifurcation. If you look at all the, uh, the, the, the dollars into electronics assembly investment in Vietnam and in India and elsewhere in Southeast Asia, these are investments that are going to create more bifurcation and trade flows in, 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 in five years' time. Uh, but that's those are investments that are not being driven primarily by government policy. It's not that governments are saying to Dell or to Samsung, we want you to uh, move your electronics assembly. It's actually corporate boards and CEOs saying, we're looking at the dynamics, all sorts of new regulatory challenges. We're really worried. Uh, we want a more diversified 
uh, assembly base with some in China and some outside of China. And a lot of the decoupling is actually coming from that, corporate leaders responding to all of this uncertainty. So what are the consequences of having, I guess, two supply chains? I mean, for companies, is it just everything is a bit more expensive? Maybe innovation will slow down a bit because you have to, you know, you don't have as much resources. What, what's the, the consequences of that? Yeah, I think certainly higher costs are um, one of the consequences. And, and I think we're, we're shifting from an era in which Asia Pacific supply chains and electronics in particular, it was a, a source of disinflation globally for three decades. And I think that era is, is over and electronics is not going to be disinflationary, uh, unfortunately, for uh, some time to come because all, all of the new investments in new facilities is expensive. And whenever you hear any, anyone use the word resilience, uh, resilience means overcapacity and overcapacity is expensive. So I, I think that's that's certainly right. In terms of the pace of innovation, I'm, I'm less sure because on the one hand, you've got these inefficiencies uh, in the production process created. On the other hand, you've got governments pouring money, uh, not only into building capacity, but also into R&D. So if you look in the US, the CHIPS Act, for example, 25% of the funds go into R&D, uh, and, and that's not unique. In Europe, it's it's a similar focus on uh, R&D and, and elsewhere. And so I think it could be the case that the inefficiencies are, are balanced out by all of the new government funding into mid to long range R&D, and that uh, this uh, keeps innovation going at, at a clip that we've been uh, roughly used to. That won't be disinflationary, um, but, it, uh, but it could keep uh, technology progressing quite rapidly. Let me pivot a bit to a big topic that we haven't touched upon, which is Taiwan and TSMC. Um, so TSMC, of course, is the world's largest contract trip maker, and they are the contract trip maker for uh, most advanced chips. And Taiwan is a self-governed democratic island, which China claims sovereignty over. So I know you were in Taiwan recently. What, how are people there viewing sort of the whole chip war and, and, and sort of being, I guess, stuck in the middle between, you know, mainland China and the U.S.? Well, well it's interesting. I think they're, they're stuck in the middle to some extent, um, but in, in other ways, they're the, the chief enforcer of a lot of the semiconductor export controls. And in particular, the types of GPUs that we've been discussing are um, largely produced in, in Taiwan. And so uh, restrictions on their sale to China is actually enforced in no small part by um, Taiwanese firms. I think there's a lot of concern in Taiwan about the push in the US, Europe, Japan to um, to onshore some chip production. And you know, if you're the world's biggest chip maker, as TSMC is, um, any shift in the, the geography of production is going to mean some decline in your market share. Um, and so, so Taiwan is worried about that for justifiable reasons. Uh, semiconductors are the most important industry on the island. There are 30 or 40% of exports, depending on which year you're looking at. So it's hugely important economically. And, and there's a lot of understandable concern about the, what the onshoring trend uh, means for Taiwan. I, I think in terms of the restrictions on China, it's actually a lot less controversial in uh, Taiwan. It, it hasn't had a, an appreciable impact on TSMC, marginally mm. negative, but not in a serious way. Um, and the rest of Taiwan's industry is thus far 
unimpacted by the restrictions. And so in some ways, when I was in Taiwan, I did an event with Morris Chang, the founder of TSMC, and he made headlines by uh, saying, I think three times during our conversation, he supported the US export controls. Um, and I, th I thought that was interesting to have him, him say so vocally. Um, but I think it actually maps on to what I heard in my conversations um, across Taiwanese business and, uh, and, and, and government. Interesting. I mean, for a company like TSMC that, you know, they do have quite a lot of Chinese customers, they have Chinese factories. I mean, is that, how, how do they navigate sort of balancing China interests with interests of, you know, the U.S. government and, and the U.S. customers like Apple and Qualcomm? Well, I think it's actually not that hard for TSMC to manage. I mean, they, they have to manage it, but I think it's not that hard because the reason people buy from them is because they do their job better than anyone else in the world. Um, and so for many types of chips, TSMC is the only source. Um, and so when you're in that position, when you've got the most advanced production processes, when you've got vast capacity and an extraordinary reputation, uh, it's not that hard to get people to buy from you. Uh, and so in, in a lot of ways, I think they've uh, been relatively unscathed by the tension in the chip industry the last five years because they're irreplaceable for many types of chips. I, I think back to in 2020 when Huawei was put on the entity list, Huawei at the time was the second largest customer of TSMC uh, right. and TSMC um, stopped producing most types of chips for Huawei and uh, there was no real negative backlash. Um, because both because Chinese customers realized that they were just implementing U.S. export control law, not making it, but also because even if you weren't happy, what was your alternative? But um, I mean, we talked about sort of Beijing retaliating against the U.S., but Beijing has demonstrated that they have many ways to retaliate against Taiwan um, economically, just because, you know, the nature of the relationship between the two economies. I mean, is there a concern that there would be political and diplomatic backlash? Yeah, I think there's concern. Um, I think Taiwan is the Taiwanese government has tried to to manage that pretty carefully. They certainly haven't been out in front uh, embracing uh, any export controls when they've been announced, yeah. and they haven't been asked to. They haven't had to. Um, and so, for for small countries uh, in a position like that, it's it's always preferable to just be quiet and and let larger powers uh, have arguments in public. Uh, and I think that's been an effective strategy uh, for Taiwan. And as a result of that, I think the, the U.S. has gotten. Uh, almost all of the blame from uh, China, uh, other than a couple of uh, Chinese diplomats uh, lashing out against the Netherlands, there hasn't really been much backlash from China against the other countries that are participating in or uh, implementing comparable controls to the U.S. And, and I think that strategy was deliberate. I think the U.S. and the other countries involved um, essentially agreed that the U.S. would be public, take the blame uh, as a way of shielding the smaller countries from potential retaliation. Wrapping up my last question, I mean, you mentioned that one of the things that you're watching out for is what China, um, you know, maybe forcing its own electronics companies to use locally sourced made chips. What are other things that, you know, you're watching out for over the next few months? Well, I think another big question is going to be, can the Chinese government uh, more effectively spend its semiconductor subsidies? Because the, the track record of the last decade is is frankly, pretty dire. Um, the, the volume of money spent relative to the success rate is, is quite low. Um, and I think a key question is, can China get more bang for its buck in terms of dollars spent on semiconductor subsidies? One of the interesting things is that if you look at where uh, the dollars have been spent over the last decade have gone, they've gone largely uh, to 
chip fabrication, the manufacturing stage, which is interesting and in some ways confusing because the the key choke points that China faces are are actually in the the tools, both the software tools and the machine tools uh, used for manufacturing. So one of the ironies is that China's poured lots of money into chip making, um, and it's all of its new facilities that have come online or are coming online are full of machines from the U.S., Japan, and Netherlands. And so a lot of the Chinese subsidies have actually filtered directly through to foreign suppliers, um, somewhat ironically. Um, well, China itself as a country hasn't gotten any more independent from foreign technology. And so I think it'd be interesting to see, does the um, distribution of funds change to having less focus on fabrication and more on actually addressing some of the key choke points that uh, China does face? That's something we'll have to wait and see how investment dollars are allocated. How, how would you measure success then? Would it be technology breakthroughs or just a gradual decline in sort of foreign imports and chip making equipment, for example? Yeah, I, I think we should be skeptical of technology breakthroughs. I, I think, you know, this industry is an industry of of, of steady improvements rather than huge breakthroughs. Um, and so, so I think a, a, a steady decline in reliance on foreign equipment um, is going to be critical. And I think there will, be, there will be process changes in firms that will be hard to assess from the outside. Uh, you know, a key question is going to be if you use a different set of tools than is normal or use them in different ways than is industry standard, can you get roughly comparable uh, manufacturing out, out, outcomes? And some of this will be hard to assess from the outside because we're not going to have access to the, the data yeah. uh, on what share of chips that they manufacture are actually functional. Um, but data like that is actually critical to assessing is a facility commercially viable or not. Um, and so, so in some ways, the, the unsatisfying answers, we have to wait and see um, uh, as, as Chinese firms try alternative modes of production, um, try producing using existing tools in new ways, for example, and see what the results are. Okay, that's, um, that's really interesting. So thanks so much again, Chris, for joining the show. And um, I look forward to speaking with you in the future again on this subject. Thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast was produced by Thomas Shum and Katrina Hamlin in Hong Kong. You can find more episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Also, check out our sister podcast, The Views Room, and check us out at breakingviews.com and on Twitter, where our handle is at breakingviews. I'm Kim Vanell. Join me every morning for a roundup of what's happening at home and around the world. From the front line in Ukraine. Extraordinary how these people adjust and uh, even laugh when you take cover. To the heart of US politics. When Trump said that he expected to be arrested, it seems like he was trying to get ahead of the story. We bring you everything you need to know in 10 minutes. For your essential daily briefing, follow Reuters World News wherever you get your podcasts.